Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Mahana Sar, a 2022 non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Today is May 14th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Basil Farraj. Basil is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Cultural Studies at Birzeit University. He received his doctorate in anthropology and sociology from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. His groundbreaking research centers on the impact of Israeli torture and violence on Palestinian prisoners and Palestinian resistance to Israel's carceral regime. Regular listeners of this podcast may remember that I interviewed Basel last September. We talked about Israel's carceral regime and how it uses administrative detention as part of its colonial apparatus. And we'll have a link to that podcast in the show notes. Once again this week, Israel attacked the Palestinians of Gaza, killing 33 people, including at least 13 women and children, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. Palestinian resistance factions responded by sending rockets into Israel, which resulted in two Israeli deaths and sent over one and a half million Israelis into shelters. Notably, one of the conditions that Palestinian militant groups issued for agreeing to a ceasefire is that the body of Palestinian political prisoner Khadr Adnan be returned to his family. Adnan died on May 2nd while in Israeli custody after a nearly three-month-long hunger strike. Israel is currently holding the bodies of an estimated 370 Palestinians and refusing to turn them over to their families in violation of international law. And as a side note, my colleague Laura Friedman did an interview with Budur Hassan on the topic of Israel's withholding of prisoners' bodies, which we'll also have a link to in the show notes. <clears throat> so this connection between Khadr Adnan's imprisonment and his hunger strike and death and last week's escalations are all the latest reminder of the ongoing centrality of the prisoner issue to the Palestinian free struggle for freedom. Therefore, I wanted to have Basel back on the program so we could discuss how Palestinians, both individually and collectively, resist Israel's ongoing carceral regime. So Basel, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks to you, Maha. Glad to be back uh, on this show with you. Thank you. So on May 2nd, we learned that Palestinian political prisoner Khadr Adnan had died in Israeli custody. Israel had arrested him for the 12th time, and this was Adnan's fifth hunger strike. His previous hunger strikes were in response to his administrative detention, that is, indefinite incarceration without charge or trial. His latest hunger strike, however, came after he was indicted for membership in an illegal organization, Islamic Jihad, and for multiple counts of incitement. So hunger striking is an extremely difficult and frankly, at least to me, unfathomable choice to have to make, to have to make. So my question to you first is, under what circumstances might a Palestinian political prisoner feel the need to turn to hunger striking? Um, so thanks, Maha, again for for uh, for the invitation. And it, I mean, truly, it's. Uh, um, I guess to, just to start, you know, by saying that it's it's definitely a difficult time for for um, for Palestinians, as we commemorate uh, the anniversary of the Nakba, but also 
Um, and I'm sure we will get into this later on, but you know, the, the commemorating, um, the act of commemoration itself is also um, unfortunately um, an ongoing event in a way, uh, since these atrocities uh, and, and the original Nakba event has not really, uh, has not stopped. Uh, and and as, as you have alluded, you know, with the recent um, uh, war and killing in Gaza, the death of, 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 of hunger striking President Khadr Adnan, and, and other events that we have been witnessing across historic Palestine. So um, to start, maybe just to kind of allude um, to the broader theme of hunger strikes, and to say that you know this this practice itself, the practice of hunger striking, is not is not novel uh, to the Palestinian prisoners movement, nor is it novel to other um, struggles um, around the world, both historically and contemporary. Um, but maybe in, uh, when we when we talk about Palestine in specific and and, and think about why prisoners choose uh, this very difficult and painful uh, strategy to to counter Israeli carceral practices. I would have, I mean, I would say two things. First of all, it might be seen as as a last resort where um, where denial, where Palestinian prisoners can actually counter or force or at least try to force the Israeli uh, prison authorities and the broader Israeli government to uh, uh, to give them their rights or to to backtrack on certain issues. And we will get into that uh, by by giving some 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 um, some specificities. But also, and this is kind of to complicate the act of hunger striking itself, I have been um, uh, looking into a couple of cases where where Palestinian detainees or prisoners actually went on hunger strikes inside interrogation chambers or inside solitary confinement. So in a way that actually complicates you know, the notion that hunger strikes necessarily need uh, um, a strong support on the outside of prisons. So in a way that also, you know, makes us wonder why do people uh, secluded in secluded locations, such as uh, interrogation rooms, interrogation chamber, chambers, decide to go on hunger strikes, knowing, knowing that people would not hear about their costs. So in a way, I think that also points to the power itself of, of, of hunger striking as, first of all, of course, as a last resort where the prisoner, uh, I would imagine the prisoners um, would have tried other, other uh, tactics and strategies to counter uh, certain policies. But also, um, I guess the difficulty in undertaking such a decision, and that's why I'm mentioning the few cases I know, uh, at least that I have, you know, been working with through through my um, my work on carceral practices, where detainees would again undergo hunger strikes, uh, no in solitary confinement or in interrogation chambers, knowing that uh, you know, or possibly knowing that no one would hear about their their cause in a way. So I think it's it's resorting to your body. Um, uh, not only not as a last resort, knowing that you are you know approaching death, but maybe um, trying to assert, uh, to forcibly assert perhaps the political nature of your imprisonment or the justness of your cause. And I think that was symbolized perhaps painfully uh, with the death of Khadr Adnan, who who um, you know ultimately it was not his, as you has mentioned, as you have mentioned, it was not his, it was not his first hunger strike. Um, but he approached his de his death, you know, uh, through um, through hunger strike, 
and through you know um, uh, uh, forcibly uh, uh, or trying to force the Israeli authorities to to give them to give him his rights, knowing that you know this he was facing a fascist uh, uh, government. Um, so so and also maybe maybe just to to go back to your question uh, again, Maha, it's. Um, to kind of reiterate that it's it's a difficult decision that that Palestinian detainees or I would imagine other other people would uh, undertake. Um, it can be viewed as a last resort where they had you know tried previous um, attempts. For example, if we're talking specifically about hung, about hunger striking against administrative detention, for instance, I mean Palestinian prisoners have been trying. You know they have been boy they have tried to boycott military courts, for example, uh, over the past few years. Um, still, Israel does continue to resort to this policy of arbitrarily detaining Palestinians. So we can understand it in, in a sense as, as a last resort, but also to complicate it a little bit by saying that, you know, it's it's I think it's a desire for life. It's a desire for justice also, where they uh, where those detainees uh, facing this fascist, fascist government are left with no choice but to use their body as, as a weapon, as a tool to to counter Israeli, you know, uh, carceral policies and unjust uh, and the unjust reality that they are living in under. Thank you for that. I think I think you're uh, so what you're alluding to here, and I think it, ta it ties a bit into what we talked about last time. Part of the Israel's carceral regime is to try to assert full control over all aspects of Palestinians' lives and bodies. And so, what I'm hearing you saying is that hunger striking, even if it's done in isolation, even if others don't hear about it, it's a way for the prisoner himself or herself to tell themselves and to tell the, um, inter uh, the incarcerators, you don't have full control over my body and over myself. And the other point I think that's really important, and I think we're gonna circle back to this, is that it, it is a, a demand of life and not a call for death. I think that's something that also often gets missed. So thank you for that too. So this issue of prisoners is one that's probably one of the most important for Palestinians because it touches the lives of almost every Palestinian living under Israeli rule. An estimated 40% of all Palestinian men living under Israeli occupation have been incarcerated at some point in their lives. And so those incarcerations have a huge impact not only on them, but on their family members and on Palestinian society as a whole. So there really is no Palestinian under occupation who isn't touched by the prisoner issue in some way or another. So can you talk to us about how Palestinians are impacted by Israel's system of mass incarceration? Yeah, so um, I mean, you're you're uh, completely right, Mahan, in alluding to this, to the to the massive massive nature through which Israeli carceral policies are implemented. Now, if we think at uh, if we think about the way in which Israeli um, uh, carceral policies affect Palestinians, we could start perhaps with the family level, the small immediate family level. Um, and this for on this point, I would say you know it has the, the impact of tearing apart uh, uh, Palestinian families. And this is not, you know, we could, of course, list the statistics of as you has, as you have mentioned, but also there's there's another um, aspect of of Israeli uh, deliberate actually deliberate Israeli carceral policies where they would place Palestinian families and the prisoners and the detainee in a constant state of of waiting. So, for example, if you're an administrative det detainee, um, 
you are constantly not yourself of course as a detainee only but you and your family are constantly waiting for this you know for the end of the current detention order not knowing if you will be released or not awaiting for the next order if it comes when will it come when will you, when will you be released and the same process of waiting may have perhaps best epitomized by um you know the administrative detention order and reality orders and reality, but it's also a reality that faces Palestinians in general in military courts, where you know the families, of course, and the, the process itself of, of reaching military courts for families is is um, uh, uh, is insane, uh, since you have to you know uh, go through certain inspections. Um, uh, you have to uh, uh, attend. I mean, if, if you want to see your, your your loved ones in in military courts, if we're starting at that level of the detention process, then you have to. You know, it's a continuous process of of attending multiple military courts, constantly waiting, uh, paying in some cases exorbitant amounts of fees for lawyers, uh, not knowing how the military court, uh, military orders, or the military law would treat your detainee, your detained family member, not having an expectation actually of how long these member these family members would 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 um, be incarcerated for uh, eventually so that kind of sense of of you know constant perpetual waiting i think is is an overarching theme that palestinian prisoners and their families live under uh, i mean i have you know there are multiple stories of 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 um of Palestinian kids growing up without their parents, uh, you know, while either a male or a female uh, uh, a prisoner, uh, and that constant, you know, and I think it's actually it's deliberate, and it's it we can actually describe this as as um, a form of violence that is that Israeli carceral regime uh, 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 uses against prisoners and their families. And if we actually if we proceed from this step, we would also see the same process in in family visitations, for example. Um, not all Palestinians, and this is for the listeners, of course, uh, not all Palestinians have the right, uh, I mean, technically, by law, they should have the right to visit their family members, but um, the Israeli uh, uh, law treats Palestinians uh, or grants them rights depending on which identity cards they have. So, for example, if you are a family resident of the West Bank, you would have to apply for permits. If you are a male Palestinian relative of a, of a Palestinian prisoner, then it's probably very difficult or you, uh, to, 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 to be provided with a permit to visit uh, incarcerated family members. If you are provided with a permit, that might be just you know for once for a one or two time visit uh, a year, which which is uh, regularly what's 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 offered to young male Palestinian relatives of prisoners. So, and of course, the process itself of attending of going to prison visitation rooms is is. Uh, um, it's very long. It, it, it involves long waiting times. Uh, it involves humiliation, where you are inspected multiple times at checkpoints and at the, the at the Israeli prison facilities themselves. So, in a way, what I'm trying to say is that we could understand the impact of the of 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 this kind of carceral reality um, through the notion of waiting, I guess, or perpetual waiting, where not only the prisoner himself or herself, you know, are in that state of waiting, and here. Um, I should probably also allude to the fact that there are multiple Palestinians who are in who have been sentenced or have already spent um, over 20 years of, of, of imprisonment uh, uh, in Israeli prisons, and those who are sentenced with multiple life sentences, for example. So, imagine imagine the 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 the, the, the psychological impact of of being handed down, you know, a multiple life sentence, for example. How would the prisoner and their family deal with that? 
knowing that you know you would only be released if there I mean realistically if there are uh, uh, um, uh, prison exchange uh, for instance you know that would allow that would allow you to be to be free or if there are you know um, other resistance practices that I don't know and that force the Israeli authorities to to release those prisoners but that sense of waiting, is uh, or at least the perpetual state of waiting i think is by itself uh, um, an entry point to understanding the impact of the carceral regime and then we can extend this also through um, through viewing um, the broader carceral reality that israel has has put in place so applying for permits to visit your loved ones uh, the idea that um, not the idea even the reality the, the way the israeli forces raid palestinian homes early in the morning uh, to to arrest family members, where actually in reality they could come just with you know a few soldiers if they want to you know to kind of have tone tone down their raids. So applying for permits, accessing checkpoints, the the the, the realities that Palestinians from Gaza from the Gaza Strip face, if and when they want to visit their relatives. And and here as a side note, of course, um, and I was alluding to this a, a bit before, but. Visitation rights is granted depending on uh, the identity cards that Palestinians possess, and Gaza residents face uh, the most um, kind of notorious restrictions, let's say, uh, with regards to visitation rights. And then I would also, you know, I, I don't know how much time I have, but I would also add, for example, the exuberant uh, amount of, of money that Palestinians have to pay actually uh, to contribute to Palestinian prisoners since Israel has kind of adopted this private model of running Israeli prisons where the prisoners actually uh, need to buy their products from the prison canteen. So on average, the Palestinian families would pay uh, for each detainee kind of 800 to 1,600 shekels um, every few months. That's on average, and that's the minimum, so that they can buy their, their, must, uh, their basic needs. Uh, which Israel sells at um, uh, uh, higher levels than than uh, they are in the market. Um, so the canteen itself uh, is also a place where it exerts kind of this financial burden on Palestinians. So we could also talk about the financial aspect of captivity, the absence of the father or the mother figure and how that impacts the economy and the economic situation of the families, but also how much families have to pay actually for lawyers, for um, for military for military fines when people are persecuted and detained and 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 sentenced in military courts, or what they have to contribute actually for tobacco or for the canteen, which in some cases uh, Maha can actually reach almost a thousand dollars a month, and you can imagine how that kind of economic um, reality uh, uh, um, affects families. So we're talking about two levels in a way, you know, that kind of economic aspect of this new. I would I I've been trying to work through this, but this kind of novel private model that Israel has been implemented through its canteen system, um, but also what fa what families financially have to pay uh, to deal with this military courts and the military prison uh, and the prisons themselves. So this. Uh, so this is a something I think most listeners don't really understand. So you're talking about a private prison system, and in the U.S. we're familiar with the idea of a privatized prison system, but the, what you're describing is a bit different in that the basic necessities that according to international law, prisoners are supposed to be given and be um, sort of have a right to under imprisonment aren't, isn't, are they're not being provided to them by the Israeli incarcerators. And so families have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to make sure that their loved ones 
have basic needs. At the same time, the main breadwinners are now behind bars and so can't contribute to the family finances. So the, there's a double financial burden on top of the psychological and emotional burden of waiting and not knowing when your loved ones are going to be released. And so this, I think, transitions us well to the next um, question I have, which is that, uh, and something that you've, you talked about when, when you described um, hunger strikers. So Palestinians consider these prisoners, that, so Palestinians who are incarcerated and Palestinian society as a whole, consider them to be political prisoners who are fighting for freedom. And as such, the conditions of their detention should be in line with the Geneva Convention relevant to the treatment of prisoners of war. And that convention, as we just said, requires uh, the prison authorities to provide basic needs for those who are imprisoned. But Israel doesn't recognize these prisoners as political prisoners. They, they call them security prisoners. And as we discussed last time, they subject Palestinians to various forms of torture and inhumane treatment. Now, earlier this year, Israeli police minister Ben Gavir claimed, somewhat preposterously, that Palestinian political prisoners have it too good and called for even more inhumane treatment of them. So can you please share with us about some of the punitive measures that the Israeli prison authority introduced earlier this year, additionally, additionally punitive measures, uh, and how Palestinian prisoners responded to them? Yeah, but if I just may can circle back just to, to one point regarding privatization, just to say that so that it's understood correctly, it's not the Israeli, uh, it's not a private model, but it's it's a very novel way of extracting financial uh, or actually placing placing the burden of imprisonment on Palestinian families. So in a way, kind of, you know, it has if we trace the historical changes in, in prisons from the 70s and 80s until now, there has been a reduction in the in the provisions provided by the IP, by the Israel prison service. And at the same time, kind of placing that burden of, of um, uh, keep, you know, uh, providing for prisoners and their daily lives on the families of the prisoners and the prisoners themselves and the broader, you know, Palestinian authority structure. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, to answer your question, so uh, it's important also to note here that uh, Ben Gvir has been saying this, you know, that prisoners have been having it too good, but also to, give, to provide kind of a context to this, that the previous one of the previous um, ministers of public security, uh, Gilad Erdan, uh, who is currently the, the Israeli uh, permanent representative at the United Nations, um, when he was heading the public the, the Ministry of Public Security, he also um, kind of referred to the reality and the conditions of Palestinian prisoners in uh, in a similar vein. He issued he formed a committee called the Erdan Committee Committee in 2018 that similarly tried to deal with this kind of issues and saying that, you know, prisoners are consuming too much water, that they have to, that the Israeli authorities need to uh, set uh, uh, the Palestinian prisoners' conditions uh, to the minimum uh, required by international law. So just to say that, you know, Ben Gvir has been saying this, but this is a policy that's long been practiced and viewed by the Israeli um, authority. Um, so, yes, similar, similarly, Ben-Gvir has been trying to kind of attack, I mean, he has been running on this agenda of attacking prisoners' rights, and maybe some of your listeners would know that he has been trying um, and talking about uh, um, uh, instating uh, a death penalty for prisoners, 
or for those who commit, uh, uh, you know, uh, certain uh, uh, acts, as as he refers to it, he refers to them as terrorists, basically. Um, so these kind of inflammatory comments he's been using. I mean, some of them he's he's been trying to uh, um, ban uh, hot bread. I mean, as absurd as banning hot bread in the morning for Palestinian prisoners, but also controlling the amount of hot water uh, that prisoners have access to. Uh, he's been trying. I mean, he he went to Nafha, one of the prisons, one of the most secure prisons, Nafha prison, and he said, you know, that prisoners need to only shower for four four minutes a day, and that they would try to kind of put a rule of having uh, water for the showers for only one hour throughout the day. Um, he's also been trying to. I mean, as I said, yes, kind of instating or passing a law that allows for death penalty or legalizes the death penalty. Um, but here I want to kind of concretely provide what some prisoners, according to Adamir's um, uh, re recent report that was published in January, it started the impact of Israel's new ultra-nationalist government on the Palestinian prisoners movement. Um, this was really, you, you could find it on, on Adamir's website. Um, so through their, their testimonies with, with prisoners, uh, particularly from Majiddu prison, um, the report says that these prisoners were informed about a kind of new um, changes that that would come play uh, that would take place. They were not implemented, and I, I will tell you why. But just to understand what what Ben Gvir was trying to do. These changes included, for example, um, changing the changes the changing the types of goods that prisoners can buy from the canteen, the, so the, the the prisoners kind of market. Uh, limiting family visitations from forty five minutes to half an hour. Um, um, per month, limiting the amount of time that they could actually go out for uh, for uh, to their yard, which is the free time, um, abolishing the prisoners' representative committee, which is also uh, an attempt uh, by the Gilad uh, Erdan's committee as well in two thousand nineteen, um, and constantly moving prisoners from from wards and from uh, from prisons between between prisons uh, different prisons. Um, they also report, report Adamir reports that the kind of the idea of hanging Israeli flags in prison rooms, um, confis confiscating prisoners' properties, um, and uh, uh, and changing and forcibly, as I said, forcibly transferring prisoners every three months from their cells and and from and, and from different prisons. Now, um, as you can tell, these these attempts were kind of trying to. Uh, take away what prisoners have actually gained through uh, multiple struggles over the years. You know, if we if we trace the trajectory of the prisoners' movement, we would understand that the rights they currently have were not granted by the Israeli authorities because Israel granted them. No, actually, they were kind of forced upon the Israeli authorities through multiple years and multiple attempts at struggle inside Israeli prisons. So what happened is after. You know, Ben Gvir's kind of inflammatory remarks and this his attempt to kind of change uh, the dynamics actually of how prisons are run. Uh, and again, the way they are run is due to years of struggle. Um, the Palestinian prisoners kind of uh, launched uh, a statement and they said that they would undergo that they would undergo a collective hunger strike in March on the first day of Ramadan of this year. Um, and then the Israeli authorities kind of um, backed down on this on these changes. Um, and that I think that kind of to tie us back to our first to your first question that alludes to not only um, the strength of of a hunger strike uh, in action, but also to the threat of a hunger strike. I think, and particularly in this case, in a collective hunger strike. 
um, yeah, and I hope that this is kind of just kind of the, the, the answer to, to this part of the question. Thank you. So the, the threatened changes ranged from the cruel to the absurd. I mean, hanging flags and things like that. And we'll also burning bread, hot bread in the morning, hot bread in the morning. Uh, we'll have a link to to uh, Adamir's report in the show notes as well for listeners who want to learn more. So uh, just to remind you, I'm Mahana Sar on the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and I'm speaking with Dr. Basit Faraj about Palestinian political prisoners and their resistance to Israel's carceral regime. So Basim, you just mentioned that this collective hunger strike was averted in March at the beginning of Ramadan with an agreement that was reached between the Israel prison authorities not to implement these additional punitive measures uh, and between them and the Palestinian prisoners uh, organization. So Israel agreed to suspend these more inhumane measures and many observers saw it as a, another hard fought victory for the prisoners who had organized collectively. And many commentators noted that this organized, that this collectivity was organized across political factions. So can you talk to us a little bit, please, about how such collective organizing happens in Israeli prisons, particularly in light of what we read about Israel trying to set different political factions against one another, putting certain prisoners in solitary confinement, restricting their ability to talk one to one another. So in those kinds, in that kind of environment, how does such collective organizing happen? So I think this comes down to, I think, uh, to the notion of, or to the strength um, of a collective mode of resistance, first of all, and secondly, to the centrality of the Palestinian prisoners movement. So in a way, I think, and particularly because this new government was trying to kind of take away what prisoners have gained through their years of struggle that the palestinian prisoners felt that you know this is this needed and deserved kind of collective response now the way the way these kind of collective responses take take place and shape i think is um perhaps um, uh, uh, very structured actually because as i had maybe alluded that each um, political party each cell each ward has um, um has its their own uh, representative from political factions who who meet uh, constantly meet and kind of deliberate on which steps to take, but and I think and this 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 is the regular process. For example, when when the Palestinian administrative detainees decided to kind of undergo a collective military boycott, um, uh, sorry, collective boycott of military courts, this was done you know in a collective fashion in agreement with all the political parties represented in Israeli captivity. For instance, so these kind of collective uh, steps require that sense of of, of uh, unified uh, front. Otherwise, you know, the Israeli authorities would um, would attack a particular uh, uh, political party or ward or prison and leave and leave the other ones behind. You know, in a sense, and that kind of their policy of 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 attacking certain political parties or 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 certain people and 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 we have witnessed this, for example, um, in the way they have been functioning over the past few months. Uh, with their violent campaigns across the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But what I'm saying is that the structures are there, so the political parties are organized inside prisons. And maybe that's one thing that the Israeli authorities have not been able to kind of entirely eradicate, that there's a high level of structure of political uh, uh, um, authority that Palestinians have managed to kind of uh, hold tight to across their political factions, that these political factions have their um, 
their own divisions, their own bureaucracy, and they, you know, they tend to kind of meet and 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 decide on certain things. And I think, but for me at least, the, what what has happened in March uh, in March shows that the Israeli attempts to divide, and and this has long been tried to divide the Palestinian prisoners community, to fragment it, um, to grant certain privileges, uh, um, is has not been been entirely accomplished, and that prisoners are aware that. You know that in their unity, uh, or that their unity brings um, certain successes and and results that you know in, in 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 that they would not be able to achieve if they had worked separately. And again, that's why the prisoners' movement is very central to the Palestinian uh, struggle, and that's why it has not maybe been um, entirely affected by the divisions that have have taken place outside Israeli prisons, which we are living in. And under in in um, in in today's Palestine, so the political divisions, the societal divisions, the geographic divisions, uh, but the Palestinian prisoners movement has managed, I think, to an extent, to kind of hold tight to this um, collective organizing. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that they've been able to transcend the political factions that plague other um, other dimensions of Palestinian society, and one would think too that the Palestinian prisoners, because of their um, the, because of the regard with which Palestinian society holds them as a, uh, as a whole, because of their uh, sacrifices and the sacrifices of their families, that their ability to transcend those political divisions gives them even more standing, I would think, in Palestinian society. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and, and yes, I think so. And also, for example, tomorrow, um... I was reading that the Palestinian prisoners are planning a collective hunger strike for one day, um, because maybe also your listeners have have heard about this. But one of the prisoners, um, Walid Dakka, who has been incarcerated, um, imprisoned uh, um, for over over thirty years now, he has been uh, diagnosed with a very serious disease, um, and I mean he has less than two years left to be released, and the Israeli authorities have been denying him kind of early release. Um, and so they're, they're undergoing a hunger strike to demand his release, to show solidarity with um, also um, a few uh, Palestinian leaders who were sent, sent recently to solitary confinement, including um, the General Secretary of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Ahmad Saadat, who, who were sent to, uh, so he's an old uh, uh, political figure um, uh, who's been sent to solitary confinement very recently, and also to show solidarity with, or to demand the release of Khadr Adnan's body. So in a way, I think since we're talking about this tomorrow itself, even though it's a one-day uh, hunger strike, but it's, it's again, it shows us that, first of all, the centrality of hunger strikes as a tactic um, when when prisoners do not, I mean, uh, when they cannot manage, or or they, when they, when they want to force the authorities to do um, certain things, but also to the strength of the movement when it's acting in a unified fashion, and particularly again because I think Maha, you're very right on on pointing um, attention to Ben Gvir and to their government policies because they are, you know, they, what they are doing now is trying to eradicate. Not only the Palestinian, you know, as as a living subject, but also politically, and and what the cause means, and what the Palestinian movement means means also. What does it imply? Um, how it functions? And I think this con kind of constant unified acts are um, a reassertion of of the political nature of imprisonment and the justness of our cause in general. So that also, I think, leads us nicely to the uh, my next question. So last year you wrote an essay titled Define Carcerality, 
Prisoner Writings Behind Bars, which we'll also have a link to in the show notes. And so the heightened political awareness and heightened political uh, and intellectual output, I think, is also an important dimension of the prisoner movement that often gets overlooked. So can you please share with us what role does writing, reading, and studying play for Palestinian prisoners? And how does access to books and notebooks become sites of contention with the Israeli prison authority? Yeah, so actually, uh, since we're talking about hunger strikes, the right to uh, to access, to have books in prisons, to have pens and papers were, was actually uh, uh, given to prisoners through hunger strikes through previous hunger strikes and through during the early years of of the 1967 occupation um, of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So that actually kind of nicely fits back to our central theme of today's discussion. Um, but how does how does the act of writing itself kind of uh, constitute constitute um, um, a political action? I would say that first of all, on, on one front, it's it's a metaphorical escape from the prison, I think. In many ways. So, if we want to understand how prisoners actually, and and there are multiple, we refer to this in 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 Palestine as and other parts of the Arab world as prison literature, Adab al-Sajun. Um, but the way actually this these publications see the light is by itself an attempt of smuggling that takes place um, either smuggling or trying to kind of you know imagine imagine big books, right? How do the prisoners manage to send out? These written materials or these spoken materials that later get print later gets printed get printed and and distributed. So there's by itself there's this kind of smuggling aspect that already counters Israel's kind of um, uh, secure and fortified uh, walls of captivity. Um, multiple prisoners have shared with you know with me as I was doing my research how this process takes place. The way they have to actually hide the smuggled. Uh, 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 written notes, how they actually eventually managed to see the light. Uh, and I'm using the word smuggling because there's also a very important way, um, it's an important metaphor also, but a lived reality on, in the ways that, that helps us understand how prisoners um, interact with the outside world. So how they manage to communicate, how they manage to even smuggle sperm, as we as, as must maybe some of the listeners know. Um, and how they manage to even smuggle their own sense of political organization, which I think is also an act that's in intimately linked to writing. So the way they organize the political structures, the way they organize uh, um, uh, their educational circles, you know, these are these are these are important uh, um, aspects of of the of, of 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 captivity inside Israeli prisons that I think are intimately linked to the act of writing, to the act of publishing, to the act of reading, and I think there's always there's constantly this essential step of of bypassing Israeli surveillance, um, either inside prisons or outside prisons, and I think it's you know kind of the act of writing or smuggling the, the sense of writing. Um, or what prisoners write um, alludes to the power of of of, uh, um, of writing um, as a metaphor of escaping uh, the prison. Uh, and I think if we understand that Israel has and still actually continues to this day to restrict prisoners' access to certain books, I mean, I would give the listeners here one. Uh, 
one example uh, where we were trying to to enter to 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 have prisoners you know access certain books and and then we realized that actually these books are subject to um, you know the the surveillance the surveilling gaze of of the Israeli prison authority. So the prison authority decides the prison service um, decides which books are worthy of being sent to prison or not. You know, so for example, if they see a book that's you know very visibly, uh, um, let's say, Palestinian or talking about Palestinian resistance and struggle, then they might decide arbitrarily not to have prisoners access it. For example, some prisoners um, or some books actually remain for months inside uh, uh, the waiting rooms as Israeli prison service inspects them and reads them, which I doubt if they do actually. But you know, just the idea of it's the idea of of kind of placing their power over you know uh, uh what enters and what leaves prison i think and that's why why i started this the, my answer with the idea of smuggling because prisons have managed to even the books that are denied or that are not allowed they actually managed to bring it through and and vice versa you know trying to smuggle their writings outside prisons and 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 in particular palestinian prison literature prison literature is is very vast. I mean, it's a vast, um, uh, you know, disciplinary and literary uh, production uh, produ production um, that deals with topics about torture, violence, freedom, uh, imagining liberation, for example. And on this note, I would also say, Maha, that um, there's a sense of of some of the books that are written by prisoners, either by prisoners who are currently held or former prisoners, are also an attempt to teach. Palestinians how to resist. So there's also a big um, or a number of books that have dealt with the experience of interrogation and torture, for example, where they share their experiences, where prisoners share their experiences of interrogation, um, expose certain tactics um, to the Palestinian detainee to be, the, the ones who will be detained in the future, for example, and teaching them how, how they can resist and be resilient um, and not confess, for example. So in a way, it's it's a process, you know, it's a it's a continuous process of sharing knowledge um, transpass, that trespasses Israel's surveillance. And I think that's where um, the power of writing comes. And also, um, it's a way of us, for us to understand why Israel restricts access to certain books and also has been fighting um, prisoners' access to formal education as well. Great, thank you for that. So writing and studying and reading both as a form of resilience, but also as a form of resistance. So it's both resilience within, during their time behind bars, but also resistance to this idea of isolating and removing them. And it has that political function as well, right? Pol uh, political education, political uh, movement building and so forth, as opposed to just, well, those are prisoners, we wanna isolate them. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So to wrap up, we are recording this podcast on May 14th as Nakba commemorations are taking place around the world and as even more commemorations will take place tomorrow, May 15th, the anniversary of the Nakba. One of the major themes of all these events is the Nakba is ongoing. So how do you see the prisoner issue fitting in with the concept of the ongoing Nakba and the long Palestinian struggle for freedom? Um, yes. Uh, so um, perhaps I would I would say uh, through um, since carcerality is an ongoing theme that Palestinians uh, you know continue to live um, and grapple with, not only inside prisons but in the way in which Israel has been exerting its power over Palestinian populations either across historic Palestine or even in diaspora. 
So, for example, we could think about denying the right of return to of Palestinians. Um, and this is all cultural function, right? I mean, if people come to, to, to an airport or to the border crossing and then they would send them back, I mean, that's an act of, you know, of, it's detention, it's an imprisonment. So we could actually expand the way we view uh, uh, imprisonment um, to kind of understand other, the logics that, uh, uh, the, log the logics through which Israeli uh, power functions, where it's, you know, it's kind of organized around this notion of carcerality, of, of granting access to certain people and denying it to others. But also if we, if we focus on the prison itself, uh, perhaps it's important to remember that there are, you know, 23 prisoners who have been held since uh, before the signing of the Oslo Accords. So we're talking about that they have, you know, they have spent over 30 years in captivity, uh, some of them, the majority of them. Walid Dakka has been, was arrested, for example, on Mar in March 1986. Um, there are multiple prisoners who have been sentenced for multiple uh, life sentences, for example. So that ongoing nature of, 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 of the Nakba, ongoing captivity, um, is 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 central, I think, to the way Israel continues its carceral practices. Every day there are, you know, there are daily arrests, daily invasions of towns, uh, the killing of people, and that you know that imprisonment is, and maybe just to kind of um, wrap up with two points, that imprisonment is um, has constantly been central to the way Israel has been dealing with the Palestinian population. And I think that's where we can think about the ongoing nature of, of, of dispossession, of violence, of exile, of the way it actually links to, I mean, some people were exiled from prison directly outside, for example, Salah al-Hamouri recently. Uh, he was sent outside, uh, from immediately from prison, taken to the airport and sent to France. So that's an, that's an act of, of, of uh, forced exile, right? That links itself to the, to the physical space of the prison. And then of course we can expand this uh, more and more, but also to say that we started today talking about Hadar Adnan, and also there have been other people who were killed um, uh, inside prison, um, people who were force fed uh, during the early years of Israel's uh, 1967 occupation. Um, uh, and then they, they were they were uh, they died due to that force feeding act, uh, and then the, the the bodies that Israel continues to hold uh, inside its cemeteries of numbers or 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 freezers, and I think that all these all are characteristic of Israel of the way Israel treats with treats uh, the Palestinian body um, and spirit, but also it alludes to this kind of ongoing nature of of again dispossession, exile, uh, violence. That's intimately linked uh, to Israel carceral structures, whether the physical prison itself or how it has been organizing its governance of the Palestinian population. Thank you. I think that's a great way to wrap up. And so thank you so much to Basil Faraj for sharing your time and analysis with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMAP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Mahana Sar. Signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.